I don't know, not sure if anyone here has met the Queen. There's people from the UK here. I was like, maybe seven in the dark they have. Nah, cool. Now that's out of the way. Here's a photo of the Queen. If you, haven't, if you don't know who the Queen of England is, there she is in her glorious majesty. Um, I feel like I know the Queen because I've watched the Netflix show The Crown two times through. Um, so I feel like I'm very well acquainted with the Queen. I know what she's like. I know what it's like to meet her. Um, but I was reading a BBC article not too long ago about like, the protocol that it takes to meet the Queen. Like, what happens when you actually meet the Queen of England? And believe it or not, it's a very tight, strict protocol that has to take place. And it's very often broken. So there's a bunch of do's and don'ts that accompany me and the Queen of England. And I pulled these from the BBC. So some of the do's are you curtsy or bow. Apparently it's not that common. Like, you, they, people still do it out of respect, but you're not going to get beheaded or something if you don't do it. Um, you got to use the right greeting. You don't say hello. You don't say how are you. You say your majesty and you, you do your little bow. You nod your head. And then after that, from, from then on, you can say ma'am. I think they say mum. Mum. They say it weird. Anyway. Um, you got to be early when you meet the queen. You can't be late. You can't rock up 10 minutes late or even one minute late. You got to be there on time. Um, you, you can't arrive after the queen. That's a big no-no. You got to take the queen's lead. So unless spoken to, you can't speak to her. Um, so you've got to wait for her to address you and engage with you before you can say anything. So until she sits, you can't sit. Until she eats, you can't eat. Um, this is weird, there's a weird one here. When you're talking to her in a group, you can't stand in a semicircle, apparently. Like, you've got to stand in a line. Apparently semicircles aren't the way to do it with the Queen. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't know the history behind that, but the BBC said it. and They're, they're English. Um, here's some don'ts. So one of them is don't expect the Queen to start a conversation with you. Um, if you're sitting on her left-hand side at dinner. So apparently the first course of any meal with the Queen, she can only speak to the person on her right side for the first course because that's the seat of honour. So if you're on the left-hand side, don't speak to her. It's really awkward. There's a video, actually, of Obama doing that, and he just gets shut down. It's one of those kind of awkward diplomatic moments. Um, You can't leave first. You've got to wait for her to leave, so you can't get up unless she gets up. You can't leave the party unless she leaves the party. Um, you can't take a selfie with her. I want to explain. You guys get that. Um, I know some people here will love this. You can't ask personal questions to the Queen. Um, like, don't you dare even try and start small talk. Don't ask her a personal question about her life or family. That's a big no-no. Um, the BBC article actually also talks about how she has these like, kind of hidden secret things that she does to kind of get her staff to come over to like, get her out of a, a conversation. So if she apparently twists her wedding ring a certain way, they know that's like she wants to get out of their ASAP, like that type of stuff. But the big one is the one thing, like the, the big no-no, like where people actually escort you away from her or they'll see it's like an attack against the, the crown, is that you can't touch her. That's, uh, unless she extends her hand, you cannot, whatever you do, touch the Queen of England. You can't put her, your arm around her, you can't hug her. Unless you're invited to touch her in some way, you don't do it. And there's this time and time again, two Australian prime ministers have broken this rule. They've, they've touched the Queen in some way. Um, but it's just this unacceptable, diplomatic, big, massive no-no. And the one thing, like it would be so weird if that happened, the one thing that you, you definitely could not do is if you're at the Queen's house for dinner, you couldn't go over to her, take her shoes off, get water out, wash her feet in front of all her guests. Like, you wouldn't do it. That would be weird. But it's one of those rules that you just don't do. You, just, you don't touch the Queen of England. You don't touch royalty. But we saw in this passage, and when we had this passage read out by Chile, that this woman in this passage did the exact same thing. 
Like she, she went up to royalty. She went up to the king of the universe and washed his feet. She touched him. And the people that in, the, in the room that night at dinner, that's one of those things that they would have seen as very, very, very unacceptable. But like we say, Jesus thought differently. And Jesus responded differently. He thought it was a right, appropriate response. So last week we kicked off this series, Experience. We looked at Experiencing Freedom, and Tim, one of our other pastors, got up and, and spoke about that. And this week we're up to Experiencing Forgiveness. And we're looking again at the Gospel of Luke, like we just had read out. And this kind of sets a tone for Jesus' mission and what he came on earth to do. If you, flick your, if you have a Bible, flick it back a couple of chapters. If not, it's on the screen. To this kind of chapter 4 where Jesus quotes his ancient scripture from the Old Testament. He says this about what his mission and what he's here on earth to do. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to, um, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In this passage that we're looking at today, we see this mission and plan unfold. Like we see Jesus do this. We, we kind of get a little window. These, like, these kind of four sermons that we're doing are little windows to who Jesus is and what he came to do on earth. And today we see what it looks like to experience forgiveness through Jesus. I'm going to say two things. I've only got two points today. I'm breaking all the rules and then not alliteration. That's okay. Because it still works. Um, we're going to see an encounter with royalty. And that's what we're going to go. We're going to look at the details there. Um, of the story, kind of pull out some key details that are really important as we kind of unpack what Jesus is like and how we can experience forgiveness through him. And then we're just going to finish the rest of our time by looking at this forgiveness. Like, what is this forgiveness? What does it mean to experience forgiveness through Jesus? So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at the encounter with royalty first. Um, this is our first point. If you'd like to take notes, point one, an encounter with royalty. Uh, look, let's look at the first few verses again real quick. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So first thing we notice, straight out of the gate with this passage, is that Jesus is invited by one of the Pharisees, a guy that we later find out, his name's Simon, um, to come over to his house at dinner. And by all accounts, this wasn't this friendly catch-up. It wasn't old friends like, oh, let's, let's get dinner this week. Let's hang out with all our other friends. Like there, was a, there was a bit of a malicious tone to this. And as we kind of go on throughout the passage, you see this. You see that um, Simon didn't offer him water to wash his feet, which in ancient Near East time was a very normal courtesy to offer to someone. It's like when someone comes to your house, you offer them a drink. Back then, you offered to wash their feet or give them water to wash their feet. But that wasn't offered to Jesus. So this is kind of like malicious undertone. And we see the reason for this is that the Pharisees are inviting Jesus over to test him. Like the Pharisees are guys who know the Old Testament well. They knew that there was this prophet coming, this Messiah coming, and they want to kind of have Jesus over to see if the half was real about him. Like, is Jesus really who he says he is? It's early in the Gospels, but there's still a lot of talk around Jesus, and they're like, let's, let's, let's invite him over and see if he's a real deal. So that's what they do. And the Pharisees, like if you're not too familiar with the Bible, the Pharisees are like these kind of religious elite. They, all, they know all about the Old Testament, um, to the point that a lot of them have it memorized to the T. They, had, like, they, hold all, like, they held all the Old Testament laws to a T. 
they were around to say, like, they would, they would be going to all the conferences, they would know all the kind of, like, weird Christian subculture things. Um, like, they would like, know all the right answers. They're those types of people. They just know the Bible really well, the Old Testament really well, but they're, they're super religious. They were kind of like the moral police of the time. And because they knew the Old Testament so well, like I said earlier, they knew about this promised saviour. So they get him over for a meal. And Jesus accepts a meal, uh, the invite to have dinner. He arrives, he takes off his sandals and reclines at the table. And it's common in that ancient Near East culture to, uh, to recline at the table. Jesus, uh, this is what I first imagined until I read about it this week. I don't know why. I imagine like Jesus like, kicking his feet on the table, like, like the fonds or something, shooting finger guns at people, like, just really relaxing. But apparently... <laughs> They would sit at the table, like it, was a, it was a kind of low table, it wasn't a high table like we have, and they would sit on the ground and lay kind of sideways with their body facing the table and their feet facing away from the table. So there was easy access. And meals are traditionally, particularly meals like this, were traditionally open to the public. It wasn't this private uh, dinner where someone's barging in, it's this kind of in a public space, kind of like a courtyard in a house type area where people would often come in to dinner, while people are having dinner, uninvited guests will come in and kind of stand on the sides of the room and listen to the conversations, particularly when a teacher like Jesus was coming. Like, that's what you did. You, oh, let's go hear what this guy has to say. Oh, let's go, let's go check him out. And for Jesus, who was kind of building up a bit of, not fame, but he was well-known, building up his well-knownness at this time, people were coming along to hear him speak. And I want you to picture it. Like it's easy to read these stories and just read them, but I want you to actually picture it for a second. Picture the table. Like there was no doubt food on the table and drink on the table. And all around Jesus were these religious men coming off, and people coming off the street to listen to him, watching Jesus, waiting to hear what he has to say, waiting for something to happen. And here they are waiting for something to happen, and then something very unexpected happens. Someone very expected turns up. It's a woman. Look at verse 37 with me. It says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So a woman enters the house of Simon the Pharisee. And not just any woman. Like, who is this woman? Like, we, we hear in this passage that she has a, a bit of a troubled background. Like she has a bit of a, a reputation around town. Like Simon the Pharisee knew about her. And while her sin isn't exactly spelled out, like Luke describes her as a woman who lived a sinful life, which is his way of saying that she was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Unlike Simon, who would kind of walk through the temple courts by day, offering sacrifices... She would walk through the city streets at night, sacrificing her body to anyone who would pay for it. Like, we're not told how she found herself in this line of work. No doubt she made some mistakes along the way. There's a good chance, like, 80% of women today who are in prostitution, there was some abuse, or they're on the other, um, the other end of some man's sin. They're mistreated. No doubt she didn't plan for this life, her life to be like this. Like, if Simon saw this woman coming down the street, like, no doubt Simon would jump to the other side of the street to avoid her. And here she is, entering his house, the house of a religious person, 
a religious leader. And I want you to stop and imagine the massive courage that that would have taken her. That's the massive courage it would have taken this woman to come, to come to that house that night with those people there. We're not told if she turned to laugh around before coming. We're not told if she kind of hit rock bottom just before she got there or that was kind of the turning point in her life. But we do know this. We know that this woman came to that house that night and she encountered Jesus. She experienced forgiveness from Jesus. Look at verse 38 with me. It says, As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his face with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. I don't even notice this when the Bible passage was read out or as we've looked at it a bit now. And this whole encounter, the whole time we've read this, the woman does not say one word. But her, like, her actions, her tears speak a thousand words. Like with tears streaming down her face, she approaches Jesus. She probably felt the judging eyes of the religious people around her looking at her. Chances are she part of it wanted just to run away that night. But she doesn't. She lets her hair down, which again, in, in that culture, that time, that was not something that women did. It was something that women reserved for the, the wedding night. It was something that symbolized intimacy, safety, commitment, love. So she gets down on her knees with her hair out and washes, uh, washes Jesus' feet with her hair. Her tears um, streaming onto his feet. She's washing his feet with her hair and her tears. She anoints them with perfume. That perfume was something that was carried around this woman's neck. It's not Calvin Klein or whatever. Perfume, people are into that. That's all I have. Um, like it wasn't something they had at home. Like it was something that they literally wore around their neck. It was an accessory that made women desirable, which for, in her line of work was, would have been really important. It was her power, it was her identity, it was what she needed. And in those days, it was something that you could only use once, particularly if you poured it out. To pour it out, you had to break the neck of it and pour it onto something. So you could only use it once, and here she is, holding something that is so deeply connected to her life, something that's so important to her, something so valuable and expensive. But also, like I said, her, her kind of power, it's a key part of how, like, what she does to live, it's precious to her. She holds it and what she does, she pours it out on Jesus' feet. This is a powerful moment. She's laying it all at the feet of Jesus. She's literally pouring it all out into the feet of Jesus. She's saying, Jesus, I've lived this life of guilt. I've lived, I've lived this life of guilt. I've lived this life of shame. But now it's over. Like I'm turning away from that. I'm not finding my identity in that. I'm turning to you and giving you literally my all, my everything. There's an old hymn that kind of sums it up like this. It says, Take my love, my Lord. I pour it at your feet. It's treasured stored. Take myself and I'll ever be only all for thee. This woman, what she's doing now, it's, it's a beautiful picture of repentance. Like here she is laying it all down before the feet of Jesus. Like she's, she's taking what's precious to her. She's taking a big part of her identity. 
of who she is, of how she lives, how she makes a living. And she's literally pouring it all out in front of people on the feet of Jesus. She's a beautiful picture of repentance, a beautiful example of repentance. And this kind of sets the stage for the second part of this passage, which we're going to look at. This is the next point. What we're looking at is the experiencing forgiveness. And we see Simon thinking to himself, Jesus reads Simon's mind, which is pretty cool. In verse 39, it says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So, instead of, so Simon, instead of this kind of witnessing this beautiful moment of repentance and transformation and rejoicing and being really happy and excited and celebrating, Simon looks at her and does what many religious people do. He critiques. He critiques the situation. Because Simon filled with pride and filled with arrogance, puts people into two camps. He puts people into the holy and the unholy. So he puts them in the holy camp or the unholy camp. And he makes this big mistake of putting himself, the religious person, in the position of holiness. While he puts Jesus and this woman in the position of unholiness. Someone is a man who hasn't grasped his total need and his total depravity before God. That he literally has nothing before God. Someone has a worldview that he was made right with God based on what he did based on his good works, based on living a moral, upright life. Simon's simple mistake is thinking that his good works made him right, that his good works justified him before God, that he was good enough to be saved, that one day he's going to stand before God and God's going to look at him and be like, oh my gosh, Simon, well done. You're, you're the best there is. You've done the right thing. Tick that box. Welcome in. He thinks that he's lived the right life. He's done the right things. And the thing is, this is still a dominant, I'll go, I'll go as far as say the dominant worldview in the world today still. People still think that it's what you do, how you live, what you get done, that's how we're saved. And a good example of this is, is Ricky Gervais. I don't know if you, chances are most of us have heard of him. He's a comedian. Um, he's also a really renowned, self-proclaimed atheist. And a couple of years ago, he, he did an Easter message titled, what was the title? Why I'm a good Christian. And the whole thing. Like he's, he literally does it right before Easter. He did it before Christmas as well. It's his thing, apparently. And this, this time around, he argues that as an atheist, he's a better Christian than most Christians. And in his Easter message, Ricky goes on. He goes, kind of goes to the Ten Commandments, what we find in the Old Testament. And he kind of goes through and ra- uh, ranks himself against them. Have I done this? Have I done that? And he gets to the end of the message. He gets to the end of the, like, his kind of rant. And he's like, yeah, I've kept them all. Like, I'm the perfect Christian. I'm a better Christian than most people. This isn't that hard. How good am I? And he wants everyone to step back and be like, well done, Ricky, you were the best. But the irony is, to all this, to what he's doing, is that he's no different to the religious. He's no different to Simon the Pharisee. By Ricky Gervais doing this, he in turn is being religious. He's doing what the religious do. Ricky, like Simon, thinks that God will be impressed by his good works. That if there's a God, of course he's going to let me in. Like, look at me. He thinks that his good works will, make him, will be enough to make him right with God. But Jesus shows us, and we see it in this passage with Simon, that's a heart that matters. 
that God sees and he cares about the heart. And we see that in this little story that we see in verse 41. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. So Jesus is speaking right to the heart of Simon's problem. Jesus is showing that he, just like us, Jesus is showing Simon, just like us, just like the woman in this passage, needs a saviour. His point is that we all need a saviour. You, just like this woman, need a saviour. You and me, just like this woman, need to experience forgiveness. You, just like me, are in debt. We're in spiritual debt. Jesus is saying in spiritual terms, yes, Simon, you lived a good life. And your debt is, is 50. And yeah, this woman's lived a rebellious life. And her debt is 500. But you both owe a debt. And if a debt is not paid, you lose everything. And Simon didn't think he was in debt. We saw him earlier. He was kind of putting himself in the, the holy camp where he's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm sweet before God. And the truth is here that there's only two camps, the holy and the unholy. And the only person that's in the holy camp is Jesus. Like everyone else in the whole world is put into the unholy camp. Now both the, the religious and the rebellious are before God spiritually in debt. Romans 3.23 says it like this. It says, All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like without experiencing forgiveness through Jesus, every single one of us is spiritually in debt. Like while the rebellious run to different vices, those who run from God, you might run to, to sex, money, power, drugs. You might, go, you might want to go to work and that's, that's where I'm going to find fulfillment. That's where I'm going to kind of fill that hole that I'm wrestling with at the moment. Substances. And for the, like the religious or the moralists, they become self-reliant. They rely on their, their own ability. They, they lean on moralism and moralistic performance and their, their own life performance. Like that's what they run to. That's what, that's what they think is going to get them there. And the truth is, if you're anything like me, there's at times that you fall into both. Like my, I became a Christian eight years ago and so much of my story before and times that I wrestled with after, my story has been I've fallen into the rebellious camp. I've tried to run away from God. I've tried to run to, to things of this world, to, to numb something or to find meaning or to find purpose. And there's been times before I was a Christian, after I was a Christian, that I've run to moralism. Like I've run to leaning on my own performance, my own, my own ability to tick boxes and do good things and say the right things. I lean on that to, to justify myself or to give myself, uh, myself meaning or purpose. And it wasn't until I started, I, I, before I became a Christian, I thought Christians were whack. Then it changed me. And I had a, a good mate who, his dad was a pastor. I was like, I'm going to go to church with you. I went to church with him. And then it was for the first time. It was, it was going to church. It was reading the Bible with people. It was hearing the Bible taught from up front. 
Um, it was for me reading the Bible myself and checking out Jesus for myself that I found out that I'm spiritually in debt, that I wasn't okay, that it didn't matter what I did, like it still wouldn't be enough. That when we have those moments of pride in our hearts and when we judge and compare ourselves to other people, that, that, that's spiritual debt, that's, that's sin. That when we have those moments of jealousy, those moments of lust, those moments where we have hate, hateful thoughts, like that, that's sin. That's, that's debt. When we do what we know we shouldn't do, we don't live how we know that we should be living. That, that, that's sin. That's us turning our back on God. That, that's the spiritual debt that was talked about in this passage. And it's a debt that we can't pay. Because some, but someone has to pay it. Someone has to pay for our sin. And the beautiful truth of the gospel, the thing that makes the good news of the Bible, the good news of the Bible, the gospel, is that Jesus does that for us. That while we can't pay it, Jesus is the one that pays it. Like Jesus, in that little story in verse 41 that we just read out, Jesus is the moneylender. He's the one who pays our debt for us. He's the one that through him we can have our sins forgiven. Like I know that on the last day, uh, when the world has melted away, and I stand before God. And my, my sin is, is scattered out before me like I know in each and every one of them, because I put my faith in Jesus, because I found forgiveness in Jesus, so on every single one of those sins, there'll be a stamp that will say, paid in full. Paid in full. Like my sins will not be held against me. Like friends, Jesus is showing us something really, really beautiful and miraculous that we can be free from spiritual death, that we can experience true, complete forgiveness. That the woman in this story sees and recognizes <clears throat> her need for forgiveness, while Simon still just, he's just not getting it. Like look at verses 48 to 40, uh, 47 to 48 with me. This is Jesus speaking. It says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Right? Notice verse 47. Jesus doesn't look over a sin. right? It's not like, oh, it's all forgotten. Yep, that's just dumped away. He says her many sins have been forgiven. But Jesus doesn't look over our sin. He, he forgives all our sins, our, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. There's not one person in this room today it's not one person for whose Jesus' death and his resurrection is not sufficient. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you've done or what baggage you've brought in today. Like his grace is sufficient for you. He's the only way to experience true, lasting, complete forgiveness. Now, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference and I heard a story from a pastor uh, from the UK, and he was sharing a story about his mate who was in the UK, who was training for full-time ministry, and he got asked to preach at this church at Oxford. Um, so he's like, he accepted, went along, he was preaching this passage. And he thought it was amazing that the prostitute, like of all people, this prostitute meets Jesus, and he just forgives her. 
Like that she comes to Jesus and she's received complete forgiveness. His mind's blown by it. He's so passionate and excited about it. And he goes, I'm really interested to see what other people think about this. So he calls around. Um, he rings up the local Buddhist temple um, in London. I'm not sure where that is. And he said, I have a friend. He goes, I have a friend who is a prostitute. Can she be forgiven? And the guy said, no, 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 like, sin, sins aren't a real thing. She doesn't need forgiveness. Tell her to forget about it. But she thought, that, that's not a comfort for her. Like, she knows her mistakes are real. She knows that there's sins in her life that she needs to deal with. What type of comfort is that for her? So he called up the, the kind of local Roman Catholic church, and he asked the same question. He goes, can, can she be forgiven? And the priest said, tell her to come to me, she must make a confession, and I'll help her work out a suitable penance. And the guy thinks, like she, has to, she has to wash herself clean. Like she has to deal with her sin herself. Like what, what type of comfort is that to her? And he thought he would, he would ring up the local mosque. So he rings up the, uh, the local mosque, and he, he says the same thing. Um, and he's surprised by the answer. They said, maybe Allah will, for, uh, Allah will forgive her, maybe he won't. Like, we don't know. I can't, we can't say. How can she know? Well, she can't know. She just has to wait and see. And again, he's like, what type of comfort is that for her? So he calls at the church, he's preaching on the Sunday. He rings them up, calls them. The guy said that he put an accent on so that they didn't know it was him. He put like this really bad Welsh accent. I'm not going to try and do it. Um, maybe Lee can do it later. I don't know if you're good at a bad Welsh accent. But he puts on this really bad accent and he goes, I want to know, I have a friend who's a prostitute. Can she be forgiven? There's this old man in the other line, the rector of the church or the senior pastor of the church, and he said, have you got a pen? He goes, write this down. Will God punish the same sins twice? No. Tell her to come to church on Sunday. I'd love to meet her. And she puts her faith in Jesus Christ and believes that he died for her. Her sins have been punished in him and she is set free. Because God will not punish the same sins twice. God will not punish the same sins twice. But through Jesus and by Jesus, we are completely forgiven through him. In Christ, our past and present and future sins are forgiven when we put our trust in him. It's when we put our trust in Jesus. When, like this woman, we, we lay it all down at his feet. And we ask for forgiveness. We promise that we'll experience true, complete forgiveness. You might not feel it straight away. It's not this feeling where you're like, oh, life's good from now on. You might have stuff in your life you have to deal with and work through with in, in community, alongside each other. You're not in it alone. But we promise that when we put our trust in Jesus, on that last day when we stand before God, the judgment seat of God, and our sins are scattered out before us, on every single one of our sins, because of Jesus Christ, we'll have the stamp paid in full. It's not through mindfulness. It's not through the latest self-help book. It's not through any deed of your own. But only through Jesus that we experience true forgiveness. And I love how this story ends in verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here Jesus is in the house of these religious people all looking on 
And here he looks at them, these people that believed that it was their, their deeds and how they lived their lives that saved them. And here he is looking at this woman. She's been caught up in prostitution and looks at her in the eyes and says, your sins are forgiven. By faith, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. It's not by deeds, it's by faith. Okay, and forgiveness is, is, is coming in humility and giving everything we have and everything we are and giving it over to Jesus. It's leaving our religion at the door and following and trusting and worshipping Jesus. And Jesus finishes with this. He says, go in peace, which in the, the original language that the Bible is written in, it's translated to go into peace. Like, friends, do, do you know this peace? Have you gone into this peace? Do you know the peace, that, the peace knowing that your sins aren't counted against you? The peace knowing that your sins have been cleared, that they, they look and say, paid in full. The peace knowing that God has separated us as far as east is from the west from our sins. Like, do you have the peace knowing that you're a child of God, that you're loved by God? That your identity is in God. Do you have the peace knowing that you, you don't have to work? It's not about performance. It's not about ticking boxes. But like this woman, it's an overflow of our love and celebration of being forgiven. Do you know this peace? Have you stepped into this peace? And for those of us here who follow Jesus, like we need to walk in this forgiveness. We need to, to celebrate. We need to be known as people that that literally party about the forgiveness that we've found in Jesus. That this is something to rejoice in and be excited about and sing about and remind each other of and remind ourselves of. Because the world will tell you that you need to do something, that you need to tick a box, that you need to perform in some sort of way. But the gospel says it's in Jesus, because of Jesus, through Jesus. Like we need to not do what the religious people in this passage did and they... they forsook the gospel. They, they walked away from it. They walked around, away from what the Bible says and what Jesus was teaching to them. Don't forsake the gospel, but walk in and experience this forgiveness. And if you're here today and you, you're not yet a believer, you maybe you're sitting on the fence, maybe you've got things to deal with, maybe you've got questions, like I want to say to you today that today is the day. Might I suggest that today is a day for you to come to Jesus like this woman did. Have, you, have your debt paid for? Doesn't matter what baggage you have, doesn't matter what you're dealing with. Come to the foot of the cross. Come to Jesus and, and pour it all out. Experience this forgiveness. Like we want you to experience this forgiveness. We think this is the greatest thing ever. People throughout millennia have given their lives for it because it's the greatest thing you'll ever encounter and experience is the forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ, our relationship with him. So I want to suggest to you today, if you're on the fence, if you're still wrestling, if you've got questions, come to the foot of the cross and pour it all out. Experience this forgiveness. Walk in new, like the newness of life that you find in Jesus. Walk knowing that your sin is not counted against you.
that today is the day. And we're going to finish our time together now with a bit of a time of, of confession and self-reflection. Um, the band's going to jump up and they're going to provide some kind of background music, some sweet tunes. But we're going to have the space for, you, like for all of us and for you guys in the quietness of your own hearts, not outwardly verbal or anything, just to reflect on this passage, to think about what this passage is saying, to, to lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. Whether you're a Christian, you've, maybe, you've done this a few times, like maybe you've repented and confessed your sin for years, maybe he's saying this is the first time. This is the first time that you're ever doing this. I'm going to kind of give you guys a space over some music, um, just to, to sit in that stillness. And I'm going to read uh, Psalm 51, where a guy called David, a guy who committed adultery, um, kind of, he does this, he, he confesses, he kind of comes to God and, and confesses sin. He committed adultery, then he had someone murdered, the husband of the person he committed adultery with, some, some dark, dark stuff. But I'm going, to, I'm going to read this prayer out, just kind of lead us into this time, we're going to have about five minutes where you just, in your own, the stillness of your own heart, close your eyes if you feel comfortable, read over this passage, but just, just reflect and, and pray and think. Confess your sin to God. Ask for forgiveness. This is what Psalm 51 says. It says, have, uh, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I know against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, that you desired faithfulness even in my mother's womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create a pure heart, O God, and a renewed steadfast spirit within me.